0: Hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 80. Can't believe I've gotten to 80 episodes. Um, And today I have another fine guest for you, which is Professor Neil Walsh. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? Good morning, Lauren. I'm very well. Are you well? I am well. Um, So this is going to be an interesting um, episode, I have a feeling. Um, I, I... wanted to get you on board for a number of reasons, um, which I'll get into after we've introduced you. Um, so I guess let's, let's start this off with you telling the listeners who you are and what you're up to.
1: Okay, yes, thank you. So uh, my name's Neil Walsh. I, uh, I'm at Bangor University. I, I've been at Bangor in the School of Sport, Health and Exercise Sciences since 2000. Um, I direct the Extremes Research Group there. And one of the team's real interests is exercise immunology, which hopefully we're going to speak about t- today, Lauren. Yeah, we are. As I, as I was just remarking
0: offline, it, it, you know, when we when I talk to people about the things that I do, and this is usually non, non-professional colleagues, it's just sort of people, you know, I, I say amongst other things, you know, I, I sort of produce this podcast and, you know, we're, we're nearly at three quarters of a million um, Uh, downloads in terms of impact and and you can see them thinking god what is it that you're talking about and i'm well you know i just get a bunch of professors on we talk about (laughs) immune system issues or you know how to avoid the uh gastric distress (laughs) (laughs) that sort of thing It's like, how the hell do we get to this many people and it just makes you realize how how big our profession has gotten to and and yet it's such a new area isn't it that that, I mean of all the of all the areas um in in the sciences sports science has got to be one of the newest and within sports science of course my main area which is performance nutrition but generally speaking I mean what we're what we're going to get into today um is just one of many areas but this also new
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the field of exercise immunology, which we're going to talk about, really, we didn't really get up and running fast until uh, 1989, when the Exercise Immunology Society was first formed. But since that time, as an example, there are there are three and a half thousand papers. If you search exercise and immune on Web of Science, three and a half thousand papers. We published a position stand in 2011. And there are over 1,100 papers, so about a third of all the papers on exercise in immunology have been published since 2011. So we've really got ahead of steam now. Wow! And you mentioned
0: two dates there. So 1989—that's the last time the sun shone, I think—and um, 2011 is um, uh, probably when I think I saw a glimpse of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> So listen, um, the reason why I said I wanted to get you on board here was um, definitely related to your your area of expertise, which is um, in exercise immunology. And, I, you know, this isn't a new topic specifically for the podcast, because I did have Mike Gleason on um, about 10 or 11 episodes ago, episode 69, there you go. Um, so that would be maybe five, six months ago. And I've also had Glenn Davison on. Um but one thing that does crop up in my conversations with the various experts that I've had have on is, you know, we're we are constantly focused on performance. We're talking about, you know, ways to uh, improve the training of athletes. We're looking at ways of improving fueling. Um, we've even delved into areas of recovery. But oftentimes, not enough focus is on the importance of of a healthy athlete um, and the implications the health of that athlete has on their training adaptations and um, very importantly, of course, their ability to actually deliver on the day. And um, you know, one of the things about modern athletes in particular, uh, you know, is not just the you know stresses that they endure through training. But there's travel stress, um, there are environmental stresses, there's all sorts of things we'll get into. Um, they've also got um, other novel stresses that we're only starting to understand, like the impact of using digital devices, particularly as it relates to sleep quality or sleep hygiene. Right. Um, you know, the way in which viruses and bacteria may adapt themselves. Um, so it's sort of constantly a chasing game in terms of medical approaches to dealing with these issues. So, you know, the health of the athlete becomes something that's incredibly important. So perhaps you could, you know, maybe we could start this, this sort of discussion on exercise immunology and particularly from the angles that you're interested in as to, as to why you got into all this, um, you know, in terms of immune function in athletes,
1: Yeah, so that's a really good one—a kind of scene setter, really. I uh, the the early idea really was that there were some papers published in the 80s and 90s. The the papers that come to mind by Peterson Bateman and later by David Neiman's group that showed that. Individuals who take part in ultra-endurance events, like the Comrades Marathon in South Africa, the LA Marathon was another famous paper, that those individuals actually seem to pick up more symptoms of the common cold in the weeks after the event. And this really kind of accelerated the interest in whether immune suppression might account for the increased incidence of the common cold after these these ultra-endurance events and the phrase of the open window theory was coined around that time where the idea was that athletes who take part in these heavy endurance events actually for many hours after exercise their immune systems are zapped and they are then more susceptible to picking up common colds but what we've learned in in the, the sort of subsequent 30 odd years is that actually the incidence of common colds and other respiratory infections in athletes it's not actually that different than the incidence of common colds and respiratory infections in the general population. We tend to pick up between about two and four colds a year. And actually, recent evidence suggests that so too do athletes. But the bit that's really, really important that you raise is that we do need to look after the health of athletes. And there's also some good evidence from Krista Malm's group in Sweden that actually, as you might expect, being frequently sick is incompatible with high-volume training, and actually, there's a you know negative correlation there. Whereby those people that do the, the, the highest level of training each year, actually, the evidence shows, as you might expect, they actually suffer the fewest number and longer-lasting. They suffer the fewest number and um, shortest duration colds than those people who train less. So, it, essentially, uh, you, you know, frequent common colds. It, it, that's incompatible with the sort of high training volume that an elite athlete would need need to perform.
0: Yeah, I you know as I was getting ready for this podcast, I read a number of papers that you sent me and some other areas that I looked into. And um, you actually there was a, a couple of things that came out in your review that um, you and Oliver um, uh, published in Immunology and Cell Biology, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes yeah. on exercise immune function and, and respiratory infection um, there's a number of things that i took home from that and we'll get into various bits of this throughout this podcast but one of which was clearly there's a hell of a lot of assumptions that are made mm-hmm. um, which is a problem um, but also that sort of issue of sub- the, the subjective self-diagnosis or you know, by members of the team, uh, not necessarily the physician, but it could be that, you know, the symptoms this person having is, you know, X and X condition, cold, URTI or whatever. And then what happens suddenly is they'll start engaging in some sort of rescue mission. Um, You know, something that I can't comment on throughout this podcast is the fact that a lot of people, well, there's two things. Firstly, very few people define stuff. So when we define a common cold or we define an illness, um, what, what do we mean by that? Is it even, I mean, how detrimental is that actually to performance as it relates to the, um, you know, to the, the remedy? Is the remedy actually worse than the problem at hand? Um, but also, um, you know, where, you know, what in what capacity um, are we sort of focusing on the wrong thing when we have to consider that you know our ultimate goal obviously you know is we need to try and keep our athletes healthy in the first place Um, as I inferred at the beginning you know is this business of trying to solve the problem after it's already happened.
1: Yeah, that's a a good point, and I think we need objective measures um, here. Now, there has been a great body of work on this very issue, and and I think it could come under the kind of umbrella, when is a cold really a cold? When is this person really sick? And there's some good research by Marie Gleason's group in Australia, a number of years ago now, that showed that as many as a, a third of the individuals, the athletes that were reporting common colds, Actually, were suffering from other, uh, you know, not you know, just uh, general inflammation or even allergy was causing some of the symptoms of the common cold. So, under the header, when is a cold really a cold? The only way to really uh, understand this is to actually perform some pathology on nasal pharyngeal swabs. We've done it in some of our work. Send them off to the lab, and then you can tell if this person really has you know the rhinovirus or the coronavirus that are common causes of the common cold. But something we must remember that is if the athlete's reporting symptoms of a common cold, even if it's not a true infectious cause, this may actually affect their day-to-day well-being, their training, and of course their performance. And we actually know a lot less about this, Lauren, the effects of common cold symptoms on performance than we really should. Um, But you would... It makes sense that if you've got symptoms of a common cold, that actually these would, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't feel so great in your day-to-day training and your and your performance. But we certainly need to know more about whether that truly affects performance.
0: Of course, yeah. And no, I mean, one of my big things is this idea of test, don't guess. Um, and I do appreciate that it's not always easy to test for things, particularly in the field. But nowadays, there's you know quite a lot, obviously, that can be done. Um, But I guess my sort of bigger concern is this idea that symptoms, you know, can have multiple causes um, and that takes us back to the assumption issue. How, How dangerous do you think that whole process can be?
1: Well, there's there's something additional there, which is there is, a, I guess, some recent support that actually those that report symptoms don't end up performing so well. So a recent study in um, cross-country skiers does show that the, the cross-country skiers who went on to win Olympic and World Championship medals, actually those individuals had, when they suffered a cold, these colds lasted not as long as the individuals who, who were not as successful. And what they monitored was symptoms, just the symptoms of the common cold using you know, standard diaries and, and what have you. So actually there is some evidence that having these symptoms of common colds actually does impact on training quality, quantity and then subsequent performance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I it's interesting this whole topic because, of course, it's something that we all deal with, um, and it's not just us that deals with it. Of course, it's the the training staff, the the you know, for everybody from people you interact with when you travel at the airport on the plane. I've had these conversations before, where you know, if a member of your team is coming down with a symptom you best not sit next to them (laughs) (laughs) especially on the on the coach or the bus it's not necessarily anything personal but you know the impact can be really widely spread um but when we go back to the training itself and you know i mean it's it's widely thought that overtraining um radically increases your susceptibility to illness but of course as you get um, closer to certain competitions, training volume might well increase. Um, you know, are are we looking to, um, focus on, you know, um, how we deal with the training more or are we looking more on solutions to get the athlete to be able to train more?
1: That's a really good one. I think there's some of the best, um, information we have on that was a study in elite swimmers uh, a a collaboration between the Australian Institute of Sport and the team at INSEP in Paris what they actually showed was that the uh, swimmers were at greater risk of infection of common cold symptoms this is symptoms again not not confirmed by you know pathology that the increases in training load Um, actually did relate to increases in the risk of common cold so um, the the individuals who who experienced the greatest risk of common cold were those who were under very high training loads even increases in training load, increases in training load of about 10% actually conferred increases in common cold in those summers of about a 10% increase and that training really hard actually had a much greater impact in terms of the risk of common cold than the taper or even the competition phase. So during a taper, of course, you would be reducing your overall volume, but still training you know, short and sharp, spike sessions hard, but short sessions. And they actually found that it was the overall training duration and load that was the, the, the greatest correlate, if you like, of, of common cold risk.
0: Yeah, I mean, and also as you're saying that it makes me realise, of course, um, well, it doesn't only just make me realise, obviously, but that you know there is a hell of a lot of things that people can come down with, suffer. Yes. Some, some are clearly more serious than others. For us men, um, man flu is that highly debilitating <laughs> disease. <laughs> uh, y- y- you know, there are there are a wide variety, and of course. Everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses when it comes to these various things. But, you know, um, of all of all the athletes, bringing us back to the evidence that's out there. So of the kinds of things that athletes are likely to come down with, you know, which which are the most common ones and the most debilitating ones?
1: Yeah, so. There's good evidence that that, that athletes will suffer between two and four common colds, as I mentioned, each year. The incidence of gastrointestinal upsets. Um, are, are a little more common in the likes of runners where you get this, there's no other way of putting it, but the jiggling of running that can cause some gastrointestinal upsets. Mm. Um, you, you know, most people suffer fewer gastrointestinal infections than they do the common cold. You might get somewhat less than one a year on average studies report for a gastrointestinal upset but both of these types of you know you know respiratory infection gastrointestinal upset you know they can be poorly timed and have a really negative impact on training intensity quality um, and of course on performance and and as we said whether the cold is actually confirmed as a true cold probably doesn't matter that much actually the fact the, the individual's got symptoms of the common cold we now uh, we now are, are better educated. We know this affects training and quality and performance as well.
0: So, you know, when we start thinking about these various things, we start to obviously look at the immune system itself. And I, we don't need to describe, you know, the mechanisms of the immune system. Uh, in fact, Mike Gleason and Glenn Davison have gone quite a lot into that, so I, I can get folks to listen to those episodes. What I'm interested in, though. Is we often talk about the word stress, training stress, life stress. Um, but, you know, what actually are the implications of stress?
1: Yeah, that's a, that, that's a big one. And I think that we, we, we go outside of the discipline of exercise immunology to really better understand that. The, the best research, really, that I know of, of relating stress with common colds has been performed by, performed by a Sheldon Cohen's group in uh, Carnegie Mellon in the USA. Uh, and, and the reason this work has got such great coverage is so well highly cited and published in the New England Journal of Medicine, no less, in 91. It's because what Sheldon did was he got a good sized population of individuals, nearly 400. And he used various questionnaires and interview techniques to rate them in terms of their psychological stress which you might think, well, that's quite simple to do. The the population's quite large, nearly 400. But what he did that was really novel, but we would struggle to get ethical approval to do now, Hmm. is he actually used a nasal dropper to um, put the common cold virus, he used one of five different viruses, up the nasal cavity. And then what he did was he saw who actually developed the common cold. So he gave them a live challenge with the common cold and then saw who got the common cold. And what we, we learned from this study was that there was a dose and response, a clear positive dose and response, whereby those individuals who are the super stressed out individuals were much more likely to develop the common cold after challenge with the common cold than those individuals who were the, the laid back, chilled out individuals. So, It was the first really excellent demonstration that that psychological stress relates to the development of a true challenge of a common cold. But the the, the problem is, is that it's very difficult to get approval to do those sorts of studies and even to develop the common cold virus that's repeatable so that, you know, if you do one study and you challenge with the nasal dropper, um, actually, to be able to do another one, uh, actually, and repeat that is, is quite difficult. But those studies that Sheldon led a- actually are very, very important reference points, is because they are, you know, they're not so reliant on the, the the morning diaries about common cold symptoms. You are actually challenging the individual with a live cold virus and seeing who gets sick.
0: Yeah, no, and, uh, you know that's a good point, and uh, that's something I actually really like to discuss is this this problem that we have is that we're constantly you know looking at these things and then we go into the evidence but what we're looking at is sort of reviews, meta-analyses, correlation studies, um, for want of a better term we make assumptions Um, so the data isn't you know there isn't as much data there Um, and the other problem actually which I think is worth discussing is is we, we, we use the word math, we, we use the term athlete but there are different types of athletes there's extremely high level like international standard athletes which um, may be sort of the genetic freaks that we see as outliers in our studies um, whereas you're sort of you know successful but nonetheless sort of more national level or and/ or uh, like your Ironman triathletes incredible incredible athletes but they're sort of mere mortals like the rest of us who get to be good partly just by pure blood sweat and tears and the right training whereas some of these sort of i guess more of our olympic level athletes are 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 are, you know are more than just that they also have gifts um
1: what's the relevance of that well, yeah, that's a really interesting one. And again, I would go back to the work of Krista Malm's group in Sweden and the recent study uh, from the INSEP group in Paris that I mentioned in Lead Swimmers. Um, I, I think both of those groups are suggesting that we make a distinction between national level athletes and the real top level athletes. And for example, the study in swimmers shows that the national level athletes were about 40% more likely to pick up a common cold um, than the international top, top level athletes. So, and and this really interests me. And and we talk about this in our immunology cell biology review a little bit. Maybe that, you know, there might be various reasons why the international level athletes who are the real cream of the crop, they don't pick up so many colds. We need to investigate whether this could be, almost Darwinian in a way, it could be a survival of the fittest, but the genetically gifted, they might also, for some reason or other that we don't really understand at the minute, they might have a a proportional response to an infectious challenge, a really good proportionate response um, from the immune system so that the colds that they suffer, you know, they don't really ever develop into anything major that affects their training and performance. And there was some evidence in the cross-country skiers' study recently that actually those that were the very top athletes that won the Olympic and World Championship medals, their colds tended to last not as long as those who were a little less successful. But of course, it could be much simpler. If you think of the study in swimmers showing that the very cream of the crop got less colds, it could be that they have just better behaviours, better strategies. They avoid sick people. They're more experienced. They, you know, they, they don't self-inoculate by constantly rubbing their eyes, their nose, their mouth. They they have better hand hygiene. You know, they, they might be better able to cope with life stresses. For example, it could be that the very, very top athletes have sufficient funding so that they're not balancing a, a full-time job alongside, you know, running 120-odd miles a week. So there are many reasons why we may... The research is telling us to make a distinction between national and international. We don't know if those are genetic in terms of your gift and that's why you make it or whether there are simpler explanations such as those of hygiene, life stress, for example, might be lower in in those individuals. But certainly, you know, continued research is required there to, to better understand that.
0: Yeah, I I mean it. It is interesting, uh, particularly from the perspective of the sort of coach practitioner. You know, the various members of the the support team that looks after the elite and professional athletes. And I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, Everyone from obviously you've got various coaches. You you know, we're not invariably there isn't just one coach. There's going to be coaches for different things. There's going to be medical people. You've got S and C sports science. Um, managers I mean there's so many people you interact with who themselves might be transmitters of some horrible disease Um, (laughs) I mean there's a lot there and you mentioned the psychological issues and of course I guess you know the more The more lofty your goals and ambitions are, and the more the more you want it, then the more stressful that process might be. I mean, there's so. I think that's the key here, isn't it? Is there are so many factors that are involved.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that hopefully you know you'll you'll have seen the the simple infographic Mm -hmm. um, that for me is my summary, very simple, um, showing the factors that 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 I believe and the research. Um, suggests actually lower immunity in the athlete and and, and makes them more susceptible. And those include, of course, the, the training stress that we've spoken about, the, the life stresses. Um, the work of Sheldon Cohen is the strongest there for sure on the r- relationship between uh, psychological stress and, and common cold incidents. But also sleep is another one that's, that's a, a potentially disrupted sleep is another stressor Um that can lower immunity and increase infection incidence. Also, environmental stress might be a factor. You, you mentioned long-haul travel and air travel, Lauren. Mm. And of course, nutrition might not be optimal as well. And each of those have been shown in, in really good studies in athletes and non-athletes to lower immunity. And, and so we have to consider each of those for sure.
0: So you, you used a word there that I think warrants a quick chat, um, mm. lowered immunity um I mean what do we mean by that because you know like if we're talking say for example about hydration and we talk about you know my athlete slightly dehydrated well that doesn't have to be a problem at all um and could be a very distracting intervention um I mean maybe you could classify what you mean by lowered immunity and the significance of that
1: yeah that that, that, that that's one that's probably I think Moving forward in exercise immunology, I think we really need to consider, you know, what reduction in immune function actually makes the athlete or, or, or the soldier uh, more susceptible to common infections. And I, I guess I could give a little history behind that, really. I think that the, the first real exercise immunology study that I know of was performed by an immunologist, uh, Tomasi in the early 80s and that actually was with cross-country skiers um, as as well. And and what he showed was that the level of mucosal immunity measured as saliva IgA was actually lower in a a bunch of highly trained cross-country skiers at rest compared with those who weren't cross-country skiers. And then what he showed was that the level of IgA, this important antibody in saliva, it fell after a cross-country ski race So it was actually lower before exercise than healthy controls, and then fell some more in these cross-country skiers. And this started, I think, along with the uh, common cold reports after ultra-endurance events, this kind of, there was a groundswell of interest in the effects of exercise on immune function, and then we got our society forming in 89, and I've told you, you know, some 3,500 papers have investigated this. But I must admit, as a scientist, I, I don't want to do bad on the family, <laughs> but, but actually we, we, we have all published many, many papers now showing that exercise like a cross-country ski race or a marathon actually can zap different aspects of immunity, whether this is immunity at the mucosal surfaces um, which are very, very important in terms of the instigation of infections, which often happens in the mucosal surfaces. We've done studies showing that blood samples, if you take them and you stimulate the different types of immune cells, that those immune cells are maybe 15 to 20 percent less able to produce a certain you know, to do the certain roles that they do after exercise. And then we coined the open window theory, whereby after heavy exercise for a few hours, you know, your lymphocytes were less able to proliferate, your granulocytes, your neutrophils were less able to engulf bacteria, which is one of the jobs they do. But actually, what we were asking in our position stand in 2011 and Monica Fleshner did it better than anybody. I think there it was her, you know, her aim was to talk about the methods and the impact of the sorts of changes we're seeing. And one of the things she dealt with was, was well, we typically show that immunity decreases after heavy exercise by about 15 to 25 percent. But does this does this really matter? What we tend to, to see is in the likes of HIV patients we know that they must lose some 50 to 60 percent of their circulating T helper cells to actually be at risk of picking up opportunistic infections like the common cold. And very rarely do we see, Lauren, that in the studies in exercise immunology, very rarely do we see that the immunity falls by, you know, 50 to 60 percent after exercise. And one of the, the great challenges that we try to focus on here is, does any of this mean anything to us by mm. showing, you know, subtle changes in immune function since Tomasi's great study in 82 that kind of started the ball rolling? We've shown that for many aspects of immune function. So what can we do about this? Well, what we can do about it is we can use what we call true in vivo measures of immunity that actually, like Sheldon Cohen did, they challenged the immune system to respond. Now, Sheldon was lucky enough in his site stress studies and his sleep studies to actually give a live common cold virus, which kind of, it puts an end to the so what question because you either you either get the cold or you, or you don't get the cold. But, you know, we don't really get the ethical approval to do those kind of studies. And I'm sure uh, high level athletes would refuse being given a common cold. But there is a there is a kind of compromise. And that compromise is that you can use skin tests um, such as delayed type hypersensitivity um where you inject uh, antigens into the skin antigens that you your body has seen before and then what you can do is you can see how good the immune memory is and how how able your immune system is to draw upon that memory and what we've done in in our studies over the last few years is use a simple skin patch test rather than inject the antigens that cause the response into the skin, we put patches on top of the skin. Um, of uh, We have an allergen, which is an antigen if you like, that stimulates an immune response. We put this in a skin patch, we apply it to the skin, And we've done this after different intensities and durations of exercise. And then a month later, we apply to the skin small doses of this skin patch, small tiny doses. And then about two days later, you measure the redness or the thickening of the skin. And this is a true in vivo immune challenge. And what I mean by that is that you've actually challenged the immune system to respond rather than just measuring the level of an antibody, for example, in saliva or the number of immune cells in the blood. And we know from really excellent immunological research that in in vivo immune challenge studies, actually, they relate better to infectious outcomes. So you get closer to the kind of your so what question. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when we did that work, we actually showed surprisingly that it was the long duration, but moderate intensity exercise that really zapped in vivo immunity. And that the short, very hard lasting exercise, you know, 30 minutes, spike type sessions, that actually didn't lower um, the in vivo immune response. So we were suggesting there that it was actually the very prolonged heavy training sessions that would be the problem for immunity.
0: You know, actually, as you were saying this, um, something came to mind uh, mainly because I've got a bunch of MSC students right now, and we're going through that process of um, developing or correcting research proposals and getting ready for ethics before we start our studies. And you know, there's that sort of selection criteria that you should go through when you're doing your lit reviews and so on, and. In the process of that, you learn things, and one of which is just because someone's done an immunology study, does it mean that they've done it right, of course? And um, are they the right people to interpret it? Uh, Do they actually understand what they're even doing with the study? They may have the toys in the lab. They may even get the right participants, but are they still able to understand what's going on? And for example, people love to throw words um, into their papers and then associate it with negative things like increased cortisol or you know did secretory IgA but but there are scenarios where extremely low secretory IgA shouldn't be extremely low and it's supposed to be high cortisol because that's the way the body should in a healthy state respond to example to lots of stress so in terms of evaluating the evidence out there um, for for folks that are listening, that I think should should hear this from you, you know, how much concern should there be with regards to those thousands of papers now that are out there? Uh,
1: uh, no, I, I, that's a brilliant question. I, I I don't think there should be concern. I uh, I think that. Y- there would be so many students who hopefully will listen to this or say, you know, Neil will always ask after the presentation, so what? And mm-hmm. I, I think that I would urge your MSc students to, when they're reading all this literature, to ask the so what question. And, you know, we've tried to do that in, in the position stand in 2011. We, we hopefully have raised it again, uh, Sam Oliver and I, in the, our recent Immunology Cell Biology paper which is so what and I think the so what here is does any of this really matter for the athletes or uh, a lot of our work is with so, you know military recruits and soldiers so does it really matter so I think when your your students are choosing their measurements it's It's much better if they choose measurements that have been shown in the literature to actually relate to clinical outcomes, which in this case, it could be the common cold or influenza, or it could actually be other infections, too. So I would urge them to to use, you know, practical measures. Yes, practical. But what I what I would say is is certainly a problem for sports science is that too often when we ask our scientific questions, we make measurements that are just convenient. You know, we, mm. we do a lot of our work out there, you will better speak to this, with athletes and soldiers in the real world, which presents challenges. Of course, it, this, it does. But, but actually, this shouldn't mean that we go about doing very, very difficult uh, longitudinal studies with just rubbish measurements that are just there because they're convenient. And that's driven at least one of my sub-teams, if you like, over many years, which is to develop non-invasive tests that can be used not only in the laboratory environment but also in the field but with the key issue in mind which is these should relate to clinical outcomes whether it's our skin patch test we need to show that this relates to some clinical outcomes, common cold for example, Um, whether it's saliva IgA or tear fluid IgA, this needs to relate to something that really matters. So Neil, um, bringing us
0: uh, on course then with where I want to go with this. So um, when we read about this stuff, we commonly will come across um, the term urinary tract infection or upper respiratory tract infection, URTI. You know, that seems to be something that seems to be of great deal of interest to researchers and scientists and, of course, is a big issue out there. What, I mean, what is the relationship between exercise and your upper respiratory tract? Um, and, you know, what, what, what do we know and what do we still need to know?
1: Yeah, so I, I think there are an enormous number of papers that show that after heavy bouts of ultra-endurance exercise, marathon running and the like, that the individuals who take part in those events are, are greater susceptibility Um, uh, to to symptoms of of the common cold but I think we need to be very careful again thinking of your students that how has that been recorded it's typically recorded using a questionnaire that the individual fills in every day you know do you have symptoms of the common cold today do you have a runny nose a sore throat and there are a number of those questionnaires the Wisconsin questionnaire the Jackson questionnaire for example and I, I and some groups don't even use validated questionnaires. I, I would strongly recommend that, the, that your students, anybody listening, that they, they use, for example, the Jackson questionnaire. We talk about it in our textbook. I think that it's one of the only ones that a relatively good validation was done against, you know, common cold with proven pathology. Um, I understand that everybody can't go and take nasal pharyngeal swabs from their athletes and send them to the lab and afford to get them processed. To see if there's a virus there, but I think we certainly need to suggest using validated questionnaires. And the studies that have done that have actually shown that yes, after you know during periods of very heavy training and after ultra endurance events, that there just seem to be an increase in symptoms of common cold in, in in these athletes. But we we really need to know better whether these symptoms are you know, are related to, uh, you know, the common cold in a pathological report, um, and whether actually these symptoms do impair uh, physical performance and training. The suggestion is that they do.
0: So, again, as one reads around in, in, in this stuff, um, is um, this idea of innate and in, in acquired immunity. Um Obviously, you know, there's lots of, I mean, we, all, we love using big words and, and potentially confusing <laughs> words in science, but what, what actually do we mean by innate and acquired immunity?
1: Yeah, the the, the the distinction is a little bit crude. An immunologist would sit here and say, "I'm going to refuse to make that distinction." But mm. and, and typically, when I present or write on this, you know, I I do tend to de- describe two arms of the immune system. Uh, if we can be that crude and, and make that separation, you have your innate immune system, the non-specific immune system. Um, obviously, you're born with this. The word innate, of course, and this. Uh, This includes the first line of defense. These are the barriers such as the skin, you know, the the, the antibodies in saliva and tears. These form the first line of defense. And then what you have is the second line of defense, Under this umbrella of innate immunity and the second line of defense is really all about inflammation and fever and there's some key players here in terms of immune cells and those are the neutrophils and the monocytes these are innate immune cells neutrophils make up actually about 60% of all of your circulating white blood cells. And they, they, I, I like to describe them to my students. They're a bit like Pac-Man, really, if you can remember Pac-Man.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, many of my students can't. But they, they engulf foreign particles. They're very, very important in our defense, for example, against bacteria. So they, they will engulf and kill bacteria, for example. But the, the reason why an immunologist wouldn't like me to really separate the innate from the acquired immune system is that these innate immune cells, particularly the monocytes that go and live in tissues, they're then known as macrophages. What they do is they're important as antigen presenting cells. So they make the first meeting with the nasty bug, if you like, and they then present that to cells of the acquired immune system. And the cells of the acquired immune system, here we're talking about lymphocytes, and we're talking about lymphocytes that. uh, meet up with the antigen presenting cell. There's some crosstalk between the innate and acquired immune system through the release of cytokines and so on. You form some memory, uh, T helper memory cells, so that when you are then exposed to that uh, pathogen in the future, you have a quicker response. And that response um, is orchestrated by the lymphocytes. And what you end up with here is a release of antibodies by B lymphocytes and then you've got some specific real sharpshooter killers the natural killer cells come to come to mind there and the cytotoxic t-cells which actually can really target their killing you know if the if the, those lymphocytes could speak they would say that the innate immune cells the pac-man you know the neutrophils they were you know they, they weren't really very specific they'll just kill anything that they see is is, is foreign and in fact of course those innate immune cells are involved in those inflammatory diseases, seriously speaking, you know, arthritis and and so on, um, uh, you know, where your immune system goes a little bit haywire. So it is okay to teach that there is an innate immune system and that there's an acquired immune system, but they certainly work together in terms of one aspect of the immunity presenting the nasty to the other. And that's one great justification for why we use our uh, in vivo immune tests by applying a patch of an antigen on the skin, because then what it does is it stimulates a full orchestration of all of this machinery of just the, you know, from the innate aspect of the presentation of what we're putting on the skin to the development of memory out in the lymph nodes and so on. And this is also a criticism of much work in immunology but also in exercise immunology whereby um, what we often do is take a blood sample from our athletes or participants in the lab. We separate out by centrifugation the, um, you know, the plasma and the red cells and platelets and then we take out our immune cells and then we separate them again into you know, your, your, your innate neutrophils monocytes from your acquired immune cells, the lymphocytes. And then we do all manner of clever, sophisticated things with them to show that exercise zaps, say, lymphocyte function. But that isn't really how it occurs in vivo, in the body, in the real world. It's all orchestrated tightly together, Lauren.
0: its I mean, it is fascinating. I I can see why, you know, there are you know, those thousands of papers already, and there's going to be many thousands of more over the next number of years. And I'm excited to see how this is going to develop and not just for for athletes, obviously, you know, from sort of human health, I think that our immune systems are incredibly impressive. Um, But also, our immune systems, as we've obviously discussed, not only are complex, but there's so many things that can affect um, our immune health, and um, I guess what I wanted to come to at this point then is um, rather than rather than sort of focusing on what things negatively affect um, our immune systems um, you know what are let 's go the other side of this what is essential what what you know i, I don 't necessarily mean from a bare minimal perspective, but what I mean what what are the requirements for you know, a basic level of immune protection, what do they need?
1: Well, I, I think that, you know, you, you could almost just look at the, the recommendations that we suggest in our recent paper um, in immunology cell biology, for example. I think that they're almost recommendations for athletes in terms of each of those stresses that we know lower immunity. So, for example, for training stress, life stress, poor sleep, environmental stress, Long-haul travel and nutrition. You know, we can almost flip those around if you like Lauren and say, well, you know, in terms of training stress, you know, the we need to look carefully at the weekly training volume that the athlete has, particularly at those very, very long sessions that we now know, certainly zap the immune system. And that actually the evidence, you know is suggested that the spike sessions the really hard but short lasting sessions actually those are better for adaptations anyway and we know that they don't zap the immune system as much as the longer lasting moderate intensity sessions and the reason that is is because long lasting endurance exercise tends to give a greater you know stimulus to the hypothalamic pituitary axis so then you get greater amounts of the immunosuppressive cortisol Whereas the short lasting, hard, hard training sessions don't tend to give you such a, a, a large increase in cortisol. And, and so I think that, you know, those are some recommendations for training stress. I, I think that for life stress, we know about the, you know, the prominent effect of high psychological stress on the common cold incidents from Sheldon Cohen's work. So I think that we really need to consider reducing life stress in our athletes, monitoring it. There are simple tools you can use to monitor life stress. And actually, there's even some really nice work on, on life stress, whereby if you use interventions such as a meditation training, a progressive muscular relaxation, imagery and so on. There are some nice studies that show better uptake to vaccination in those individuals who actually took part in some of those psychological skills training. So although I, as a physiologist, I don't like to talk much about the dark arts, it's it's a little (laughs) embarrassing for physiologists to actually admit that psychological stress seems to have some overarching impact here. And that there is evidence that if you reduce the psychological stress, that, that that can improve, you know, proper in vivo immunity, like vaccination success. And, and with sleep in mind, again, some work by uh, Sheldon Cohen's group does show quite clearly that those individuals that get less than seven hours sleep a night are three times more likely to actually develop the common cold when his team sprayed that up the, up the nasal cavity. And that those people who are poor sleepers, so those who, who actually have an efficiency, there's a cutoff of about 92%. And, and what that means is when you go to bed, it's the time you spend actually asleep. And anywhere below 92% is actually, it's it's, it's, it's poor sleep. And what he showed was that those individuals who were poor sleepers had Nearly six times the risk of developing the common cold than those who, <laughs> those who whose head hits the pillow and they go straight to sleep and you know they stay asleep. You know they're up nearly at ninety eight hundred percent of the time they're in bed they're asleep. And actually, we do have the so what there in athletes, which is that a really nice paper by Leader published in JSS, a Journal of Sports Sciences, a few years ago now, showed that in high level athletes in the UK there is evidence that the athletes have poor sleep quality, they have a, a longer time it takes them to get to sleep too, than the control individuals. And one of the, the bees in my bonnet in the, at the moment is that actually there are ways in which you can get to sleep sooner. You know, you need to avoid the blue light from your tablets, your, your iPhones and so on, because we know that you know blocks the melatonin that you need to to, 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 to get to sleep. So you know, there are nice apps now like the Night Shift app on the iPhone, which will block out the blue light late in the evening to help you sleep. So there are simple ways for training stress, life stress and poor sleep that we can help our athletes mm. um, uh, there.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, actually, the sleep thing, um, apart from being of significant personal interest with a uh, 15-month-old baby at home. (laughs) (laughs) But apart from that, um, I I actually did a a podcast with John Bartlett um, all about sleep. So I I will refer listeners to that because that was um, an awesome podcast. Very, very, very interesting. And there's so much more to learn um, about that. Um, But bringing this round to, I guess, one of the areas that I'm personally also very interested in of course which is nutrition and nutrition is an interesting one because that's the area that everyone fancies themselves as a bit of an expert I guess and (laughs) there are some very topical areas um, right now one of which of course is the sort of um, debate over carbohydrates Um, even though the evidence seems pretty clear that it's necessary for medal-winning performance, of course. People still like to play around with carbohydrates, and I've I've gone into great depths with many previous guest experts um, um, on topics like carbohydrate periodization, for example, with people like John Hawley and um, James Morton, Trent Stenningworth, and so on. they really, really interesting. But we briefly touched upon this with Mike Gleeson, but I'd be interested to know what your thoughts were on um the role of things like carbohydrates and maybe other nutritional factors that um that are often manipulated for say body composition purposes uh, for performance purposes without consideration for the immune system
1: yeah that's an interesting one and i think that there's a, a a general recommendation certainly for you know for your students and for any other students listening which is that I really urge you to read broadly here. And what we often do is, you know, even as a student, you come to your third year project, you become a mini expert on your degree dissertation. Um, But you need to look more broadly here outside of your own little discipline. uh, Read more broadly because actually you have the experts on carbohydrate and performance, you know, manipulating carbohydrate, you know, training low for example was, mm. was very, very popular. But I think what we need to recognize uh, for our athletes is that, that there may be times when training low to potentially maximize adaptations, that this is a really good thing at certain times. But we have to be aware that there may well be a rub here and that rub is that actually the immune cells need carbohydrate. Um, Also that having a low blood glucose level after very prolonged exercise, we know that's a stimulus for the immunosuppressive stress hormones, such as cortisol. So the rub might be, well, you may may well get some greater adaptations by training low, but you do need to be careful in terms of maintaining your immunity. You don't want to almost do this too much, this training low, because we and others have done studies that have shown that You know, you really need to have a carbohydrate intake of greater than fifty percent your energy intake, and that during prolonged heavy exercise, we and others have shown that you know forty grams or more of carbohydrate an hour can blunt the immunosuppressive stress hormones and can you know blunt some of the immune modulation you see with with heavy exercise. Yeah, I I think
0: I get, and you know my my own personal. Um, uh, uh, research interests uh, relate more to um, things like uh, epistemology of practice. Um, um, you know what, why it is we say what we say and why it is we do what we do in practice, i.e., the you know the trenches as opposed to an idealistic, highly controlled environment of a lab. Um, but one of the one of the things that that we as human beings get stuck into is 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 the um attraction of a dualistic approach to things you know either or because it's simple it's much easier to to get um you know sort of knowledge in sort of two black and white areas and then decide you know um almost like a religion which one you believe in more and then inflict that upon everyone and i think that's a problem is is we forget about the individual we're actually working with um and their own personal needs and that is why you need as you say to read around a lot and i like the analogy of a toolbox you know you you need lots of knowledge and skills both not just knowledge that you read, but also knowledge that you put into practice because sometimes that knowledge as amazing as it is, is one of those so what scenarios, which, yes, <laughs> which can yeah. be a real shocker yeah. in practice. You spend all this time learning stuff and then you actually go and try it and the athletes like, yeah, I'm not going to have that because I don't
1: like the look of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree completely. Um,
0: so, um, let, let let's, let's talk um, about other nutritional components then. So, um, um, you know, there are other areas that I've discussed with people like vitamin D. I talked to Graham Close a lot about vitamin D, um, which I find really interesting. Um, I mean, what are your um, thoughts about sort of th- those sort of things, you know, nutrition? And I guess where we should lead this to is, is your feeling of the value of supplementation.
1: Right. Okay. So, I mean, vitamin D is a really good one there. We, we have got a, a great interest in, in vitamin D now. The, the the Vitamin D is formed, 90% of the vitamin D in your body is formed by the skin sunlight action. Um, but what we know of is that in the summer, about 80% of the vitamin D formed in your body comes from skin sunlight exposure. But of course in the winter, particularly at our latitude in the UK, in the winter, the food source of vitamin D can make up about 80% of the vitamin D in your body. So you almost need an approach for the summer and you need an approach for the winter. Well, why is vitamin D important? Well, we know that vitamin D is obviously important for for bone health. We know about the industrial revolution, and rickets and so on, we know about that well. But what we're learning more recently is that vitamin D is also potentially important for for muscular performance. Some of Graham's work has looked at that. And also that vitamin D is very important to maintain immunity. Particularly, there's a lot of research showing that you need optimal vitamin D levels to maintain innate immune function. But also we're learning about acquired immune function too and a need for vitamin D. So how do you get that vitamin D and, and, and what impact does it have? There is some research here um, from Mike Leeson's group at Loughborough University that shows that those individuals, those athletes with very low vitamin D do tend to suffer more common colds. And there are actually some commentators um, in the broader field of nutrition and immunology that believe that the common cold is actually common in the winter, as is influenza, actually because of the low vitamin D level you see in the winter when the sun goes away. There are others, of course, who believe that just prior to, 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 you know, large incidences of the common cold, there are drops in ambient temperature and humidity. There's, there's kind of a conflict there of people who, as you say, they work in different disciplines and are disciples of that discipline. But the the kind of recommendations we would give, and we've done that in our recent publication in Exercise Immunology Review and the infographic that's kind of done the rounds on Twitter that I produced, is that in the summer... You can get sufficient vitamin D. That's measured as the level of circulating 2,5-OHD. And people believe sufficiency is 50 nanomolars for 2,5-OHD. You can reach that level of sufficiency by simply wearing shorts, T-shirt, and having your face exposed to the sun between about 10 a.m. and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, only for 15 minutes. So you only need to expose about a third of your body surface area, shorts and T-shirt, for about 15 minutes on most days of the week. This should not burn the skin. Obviously, you need to apply sunscreen after that 15 minutes. But what that shows is there is a safe sunlight exposure, which wouldn't burn the skin for most skin types. It certainly wouldn't burn the skin and would give you you know sufficient levels of vitamin D by the end of the summer. And then in the winter, there's quite a lot of research that shows that you can maintain above that 50 level sufficiency throughout the winter by having a 1000 IU D3 supplement each day. And the reason we suggest that is because obviously in the winter, there's very little sunlight. Food is the major source. But the food sources of vitamin D, you'd have to eat, for example, a lot of salmon, which is rich in vitamin D to get that 1000 IUs per day that we know will maintain sufficiency during the winter up until spring when you can go back to going out in the sun. But there are some gaps in knowledge there. Um, for example, some studies on muscular performance have suggested much greater um, supplement levels of vitamin D, but our worry there would be about toxicity. And there are also, in terms of immunity, recent studies suggesting that you don't need a level of 250HD, um, which is the measure of vitamin D, of 50, but actually levels above 75 actually are related to. Fewer common colds, for example, better immunity uh, from general population studies. But we don't have the evidence, at least good evidence in athletes and the military that actually a higher level of vitamin D, such as that I spoke about then, is actually required. We need good evidence that above 75 as a target for 2,5-OHD, you know, that that really does improve immunity and reduce common colds in in athletes
0: yeah and I you know uh, as I said I've done a podcast with Graham Close on this so folks can listen to that but I think this one's interesting because I like many of the performance nutritionists that will be listening will, will try and take a food first approach to what? their nutrition interventions but vitamin D is one of those things that as you've just suggested is you know it's misleading because we call it a vitamin D and that obviously is a whole nother conversation but It is one of those things that we're not supposed to um, achieve optimal levels through the diet Um, so a food first approach isn't necessarily the right way to do do that when it comes to vitamin d but also you you talk about exposure of the skin now i i sort of joked at the beginning about um 1989 being the last time i saw the sunshine (laughs) um that is an issue you know and and I, i guess You know, one can laugh about this, but, you know, um, a long, it's been a long time since um, human beings walked around um, with um, a a few items of, uh, you know, furry clothing uh, and spent huge amounts of time outside. You know, um, if we bring this to the athletes, I mean, they're they're often training indoors now. Um, They're definitely covered up um, with all sorts of kit. Um, you know the, the the idea of the optimal sort of skin exposure, and then we start talking about the zenith angle of the sky, the sun, and blah blah, blah blah blah. It just becomes a given, doesn't it? That 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 of of all the things, yeah, you could try and achieve through diet. Vitamin D supplementation is kind of essential.
1: Yeah, yeah, but 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 I certainly think that our recommendation for safe summer sunlight. You know, there are other benefits besides. You know, potentially giving you sufficient levels of vitamin D. Getting out more. It feels good to go out in the sun. You know, it, it yeah. feels good to go out in the sun. There are okay. there are mood enhancing effects of going out in the sun, sure. and other potential benefits too of of getting your vitamin D. You know, from spring throughout summer in mm. in, in that way.
0: Yeah. No. No. I, I I mean, look. I I think we've gotten so obsessed with the outcome of winning goals you know we take very sort of robot-like approaches to stuff and we put our athletes through incredible experiences in terms of training and we've got all this technology and um all this all this research and science about making them better athletes but do we make them better humans do we make them happier humans is it normal to be so focused on one area without living life and all the sort of the nourishment to be slightly uh, alternative about this, you know, the, the yeah. importance of being happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an interesting it's one, isn't it? Well,
1: repeating well, when you're happy, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, uh, listen, we, we obviously could go on for hours about this stuff, but unfortunately, the uh, the podcast is almost at an end. Um, um, but I think one sort of final sort of area to get into is is where you feel the future Directions of, of research um, are going or should be going in terms of exercise immunology.
1: Yeah, I, I mean we talk about that a little bit in, in our immunology cell biology paper. I, I think that we need to better understand the um, you know wh- whether the common colds that the athletes experience um, really do impact upon training and performance, and whether they are you know infectious. Um, firstly, I think we need to better understand the influence of the, all of these different stressors on immune function in athletes and what we can do about it. I, I talk a bit in the review paper about you know, the overarching influence potentially of psychological stress. And also the health benefits of physical exercise as well. there was one really lovely paper in Medsize Sport in two thousand and eleven that showed that actually regular physical activity, those who are really you know good exercises doing up to about an hour a day, those individuals suffered less common colds than those who are less active. But the really exciting thing about that paper was that, actually the effect was much greater. Exercise had a much more beneficial effect in reducing colds in those individuals that were high stress individuals. So there are not just uh, future directions for understanding elite athlete exercise immunology, but also the kind of the anti-inflammatory, the health benefits, some of which are immunological of regular frequent exercise as well. But one of, the, one of the kind of, it's clairvoyant in a way, one of the topics that really excites uh, my team is actually whether you could predict if somebody's going to get a, a common cold or a respiratory infection mm. or any other infection by somehow non-invasively monitoring immune function. And we have for, I suppose as a field, 20 to 30 years, focused all our efforts on the convenience of saliva samples approach you know take saliva samples measure lots of different things in those saliva samples um, and then maybe be able to predict the outcomes for training health and so on you know uh, uh, saliva iga for example if it falls one week to the next you might then be able to say oh this person's going to get a a higher they've got a higher risk of common cold but actually that work hasn't been that successful if i'm really brutally honest we haven't got to a point where with a great deal of conviction, we can say that the bio-monitoring tools that we have, you talk about a toolkit, Lauren, actually can predict with any confidence infection. And that's where our efforts are right now in my lab on the, the recent work we've done on tear fluid as a non-invasive marker. Um, the reason we focused on tear fluid is that tear fluid is quite uniform. It's only produced by one gland, the lacrimal gland, whereas Part of the complication with saliva is that it's produced by many, many glands with different contributions in terms of protein um, uh, t- to the production of saliva from those various glands. So we're focusing our efforts certainly on biomonitoring to try and predict health outcomes, not just those uh, around immunity, but other health outcomes too. And we're focusing our efforts on you know the potential for tear fluid and the smart contact lens to be able to fill in the kind of the clairvoyant gaps if you like
0: yeah i mean i i've mentioned before on this podcast i'm, I'm a i'm a well i'm probably a typical man in this respect i just love gadgets um, <laughs> but particularly as it relates to my work and um i can't wait over the next few years i think there's going to be some great toys coming out but you know like we were inferring you know you need to appreciate the the you know the relevance and applicability of what these things say um or tell us and it's very much and I'm gonna to have to adopt this throughout this podcast. In addition to my catchphrase of um of context, it's all about context. I think it's gonna be so what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So what? <laughs> uh, so um Neil look thank you very much for giving your time today. I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and sharing your knowledge I'll be sure to include the various papers particularly the um, exercise uh, uh, the review the um, uh, exercise immune function respiratory infection in immunology and cell biology. I'll also include the, the infographic um, if folks want to follow on on twitter what, what is your twitter id
1: I am at Professor Neil Walsh, and uh, you can also find me on ResearchGate and LinkedIn as well.
0: All right, brilliant. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to your ResearchGate. And um, if if uh, if those that are listening still want to um, uh, further their education and come come to Bangor University to learn with you guys, wh- how can they find out more
1: about your programs? Oh, please just go to bangor.ac.uk. Um, that would be great. Brilliant.
0: And um, if folks want to learn uh, more about this stuff, um, of course, there is the new um, continuing professional development program that we've created in performance nutrition and exercise physiology. You can learn about that at guruperformance.com under education. Um, And then there's the ISSN Uh, diploma program which i uh, developed a while ago now where you can um, get uh, educated in performance nutrition learn about that in the issndiploma.com website Um, if you want to come and do an msc in sports and exercise nutrition with me at middlesex university you can also learn about that at the guru performance website or just go to middlesex university's website Um, but once again thank you neil it's been excellent Thank you, Um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, thank you all for listening. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and we'll bring you another podcast very soon.